From almond water to $200 million car part empire. Today, I'm speaking with David Mignon, the CEO of carparts.com, a publicly traded e-commerce company that has moved the dealership parts department entirely online. We discuss solving the auto repair crisis, his billion dollar vision, the most profitable car parts, 3D printing, AI, and much more. What's up, everyone? This is Car Dealership Guy. You're listening to the Car Dealership Guy podcast, which is my effort to give you access to the most unbiased and transparent insights into the car market. Before we get into the show, don't forget to subscribe to my very own Car Dealership Guy newsletter for the latest insights into automotive. Emails go out weekly and contain my most transparent insights into the market. And the best part, it's 100% free. Some of the recent topics I've written about include the state of dealership buy sales, Amazon's online car sales announcement, Ford's challenges with its dealer body, and much more. Be the first to know where the market is moving. Join 53,000 others and subscribe to the Car Dealership Guy newsletter at dealershipguide.com or visit the link in the show notes below. Again, that's dealershipguide.com. This episode is also brought to you by AutoFi. Most digital retail platforms are limited in their capabilities and fall short on empowering dealers to convert shoppers into buyers while protecting profitability. AutoFi delivers done deals by empowering your dealership with the technology to land customers on the right vehicle and deal. From payment configuration, FNI product selection, credit and real-time lender offers, plus the backend selling tools to help close the deal. This accelerates the deal no matter where the customer is, on the dealer's website, over the phone, or in the showroom, and translates to a faster sale with better customer experience and higher profits. In fact, the most engaged dealers on Autofy see $411 more backend PVR versus non-Autofy deals. Go to autofy.com slash CDG to learn more or click the link in the show notes below. That's autofy.com slash CDG and start working with done deals today. When I was 18, my, my family and I, we decided to move to the United States and live the American dream. And so, you know, learned the language, got my first car, went to college, did a couple of different jobs, started a couple of different companies, some more successful than other. And, you know, five years ago, I had an opportunity to, to join one of the most exciting companies I've ever heard of. And I've, I've ever been a part of It's at the time was called US Auto Parts Network. And today we renamed the company and it's called carparts.com. We own a brand called JC Whitney that's been around for over a hundred years. And, you know, so I've been living the American dream for the last five years. And, you know, a 18 year old French guy who didn't speak the language is now a parts guy selling parts for F-150s and Dodge Rams. Couldn't make up a better story than that. So it's pretty easy to Google your name. I mean, you pitched stuff on Shark Tank. I mean, you really went all in on this like American dream. First of all, what led you to going on Shark Tank, pitching some CPG products? Tell us about that. You know, I, like you said, I have a lot of energy. I have a lot of passion. I think in 2013 or 14, I launched a company with my wife in the consumer packaged goods, and I was making a pitch in one of the biggest trade shows of the industry. And then one of the casting producers, she's now the executive producer for the show. You know, she saw me from the corner of her eye and I was pitching and selling and, you know, trying to, to tell my story and my vision. And, and ultimately, I was trying to move some product. And uh, she said, hey, you have good energy. Would you like to come on the show? And so, you know, we went through the casting process. What was the product? Uh, it was called Victoria's Kitchen Almond Water. So, you know, all natural, gluten-free beverage at the time was very trendy. And so, you know, we ended up building the business, getting national distribution. The company was acquired. It was a good, good experience. You know, I realized the importance of vertical integration and margin. You know, what's interesting about consumer packaged goods is that the brand owner or the manufacturer is the last person to get paid. 
So, you know, you got brokers, you got advertising, you got distribution, you got manufacturer. So, you know, I have an accounting and finance background, but, you know, when you run the math, consumer packaged goods is not as interesting as directly sourcing quality parts from overseas, bringing them directly to our distribution centers and shipping them directly to our customers. So the less people in the middle, the better products we can offer our customers for the lowest price and still have some really good margins. We'll dig into vertical integration. I love that you brought that up because that's a hot topic nowadays. Okay, so what led you to carparts.com? How did this happen? I like to say it's luck, which is, you know, preparation meets opportunity, you know, right place and, and right time. I think it's also the willingness and the ability to do things that are uncomfortable. You know, when I got the call from carparts and the opportunity to join, at the time, the company was going through a, a very difficult time. You know, the sales have been flat for about 10 years. The company had limited cash, plenty of debt. The growth had stopped. And, you know, the company was facing some very, very difficult challenges. And so, you know, I asked around to some of my friends and said, you know, I have this opportunity to join this company. Huge total addressable market, huge opportunity to disrupt the space, but the company is going through a tough time. And everyone said, you're crazy. You shouldn't do it. And so that's exactly why I said yes. <laughs> that's a hell of a way to live. So you get to carparts.com. I think give us this table set for obviously this, the name is self-explanatory, but I do want to go through just the intricacies of your business. What do you do? You give us the fundamental problem that you're solving. Fundamental problem that we're solving is that we think that car repair and maintenance is a painful and full of friction process. And so what we're trying to do is remove the friction, remove and create a much better experience all through mobile, all through digital. And so the way we do that is we have a unique digital experience that has a full catalog of auto parts where we give customers all the information they need to pick the parts that fits their car. But on top of that, we have a whole data play and a whole supply chain and logistics infrastructure behind it. So, you know, forward facing, we're an e-commerce company with an app and a website mm -hmm. that gets a hundred million uniques. But in the background, we have one million square feet of supply chain space that we operate. We have a thousand people. We operate 24 seven. We bring in, you know, a hundred thousand products, a hundred thousand individual SKUs in our warehouses that we source directly from manufacturers and we ship them directly to the customer. So you have the data piece, the catalog piece, the fitment piece. Walk me through that. Like when I think of a dealership, they stock some parts, you know, they, they don't stock all the parts necessarily. So in your business model, why do you need these massive warehouses or what, what advantage does that give you? Great question. So, you know, the advantage is that the customer wants the part that fits their car as quickly as possible. They want the best quality, but they also want the lowest price. And so what we found is that by having that vertical integration, which we talked about, we go straight to the manufacturers overseas or in Mexico or, you know, in Taiwan, we stock everything in our warehouses and we have five of them nationwide. And so when the customer places an order, we try to ship it as quickly as possible so that they get it within two days or less. Now, how does that differ from the brick and mortar retailers? By cutting out the middleman, we can offer the same quality parts at, you know, 40 or 50% cheaper. So controlling our own destiny, stocking all the inventory close to the customer, that allows us to offer the same product at a much lower price. Yeah. That's why we do it. I think the whole parts and service part of the business, car business has been very interesting last couple of years because as car prices have gone up, I would assume that's a massive tailwind for you. But also 
we've seen that people are holding their cars on long for longer, right? The average age of a vehicle on the road has eclipsed 14 years, which is an all-time record. In the last two weeks, I actually posted that dealers year over year were doing a, a little bit less service business. I, I don't remember the exact percentage. I think the point is that it seems like there's an interesting trend of consumers going to maybe smaller service centers, kind of local shops, or let's just say exploring other options than doing a traditional dealer, mostly due to cost. So I'm curious to know like how that's impacted your business. These just like movements in the economy and affordability being so tight. What are you seeing? Like what's the insight that you're seeing on your end? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. So what's interesting is there's 300 million vehicles on the road in the United States. And so those cars are lasting longer and longer. And so, you know, you mentioned 14 years for the average age of a car on the road. That's kind of our sweet spot, somewhere between eight to 10 years to 20 years. That's where we see the biggest opportunity. So if you have a brand new car, chances are, you know, the first three to five years, you're under warranty. You're going to go to the dealer to do the service. You're not going to have a lot of stuff to do on your car. Past five years, you want to keep that car going longer, obviously because of interest rates, cost of new cars, cost of used cars. So there's an opportunity to do basic maintenance, basic upgrades, basic fixes to your car. And we do all the stuff outside of the car and then under the hood. So we do both. And a lot of times you can go to YouTube and do very basic maintenance and become kind of like that DIY guy. So our customer tends to be, you know, 80% of our customers, they go to our website, they buy the part and they do the work themselves. Now, 20% of those, they take the part and then they go to a shop or a friend or an uncle and do the basics. There's a lot of jobs on a car that you can do for both maintenance and upgrade that are relatively simple. Mm -hmm. Do you sell to dealers? I mean, do you only sell to consumers? Like you said, the, the DIY customer, is that who buys parts online? The majority of our customers are DIY. There is a subset of customers that buy uh, direct from us, dealers. I think that's actually a huge opportunity. I think dealers and, and shops, regional shops, are looking for you know options. And so you have the brick and mortar retailers if you need the part extremely fast. If you're willing to wait a day or two, you can get the same part, the same brand for 40 or 50% cheaper and get more margin. So it's just the shop or the dealer has to run the math. If you need a bumper within the next hour, we're not the option for you. If you're willing to wait two to three days, we'll get you the exact same bumper made in the exact same factory, but it'll be 50% of the cost. Interesting. So how do you compete with dealers? Is, is that your way to compete with dealers on price? No, we're, we're not trying to compete with the dealers. We're just trying to be an option in terms of sourcing the parts. And so, and what I think is really interesting about our business is that you look at the big four, they're very centered around mechanical parts. You know, there's some big players out there that do body parts and collision parts. Our supply chain is actually built to handle odd-shaped item and very large items. So we can sell a door handle or a brake pad, or a set of shocks, but we can sell you a grill, a hood, a bumper cover, a tailgate, and we can handle that. We can source, we have 5,000 unique bumper covers in stock today in all regions, which means if you have a 2004 F-150 and you get into a little fender bender, if you don't want to go to a collision shop, you can buy that bumper from us and you can install it yourself in 15 minutes or less. So either you go to the dealer you'll probably pay, you know, call it $1,000. And if you have a relationship with a dealer that you trust, that's a good option. You can go to a collision shop, which will source that part from a distributor, which will be more expensive than us, and then we'll have labor on top of it. Or if you're DIY inclined, go to YouTube, 
check out some of the videos out there, how to change my bumper cover for, you know, F-150 2008. You buy it from us, you'll have it in two days and you'll spend maybe $250. So we're just offering an additional option for someone who's a little more DIY inclined. What's it been like for you building this company? Such a difference from how you started your professional career. Tell me about it. It's been awesome. It's been literally the best five years of my life. Extremely lucky. I get to work with exceptional people. You know, we went through a big transformation. We brought in a lot of technical experts. We're very big on corporate culture. We're very big on discipline, operational excellence. We try to get the best of the best that we can get, regardless of their background, regardless of college degrees, regardless of, you know, nationality. We got a lot of immigrants. We got a lot of people that were born here. It's just, we've built such a great culture that's focused around, you know, the customer. How do we solve the customer's problem? How do we build an exceptional business? And then layer onto that, the finance, the economics, the scale. Start with the customer, build an exceptional business with great positive unique economics. And then, you know, we're a publicly traded company. So we do have advantages in terms of access to capital and, you know, the ability to recruit, you know, some senior people, but it's been awesome. I'm having a blast. I can't wait to see where we take this company over the next five years. I'm sure it sounds like it. What's been your biggest challenge, would you say? I mean, clearly the last couple of years have been overall a boon for just used parts, service, because of the prices of cars and affordability. What has been your biggest challenge you've been grappling with? You know, there's there's a lot of education that needs to be done in terms of buying parts online. You know, I, I think if you look at the big four, obviously, you know, it's $60 billion of sales out there. And there's still this this opportunity to go into a brick and mortar shop and say, hey, this is my car. This is my problem. What's the solution? And then the counterman, who's usually, you know, a former mechanic or really good with parts, will you know, type it into a computer and say, hey, this is the part that you need. How do you replicate that experience while keeping that customer connection, while being a destination for that customer, offer the same part, but online? So we do have the ability for customers to order over the phone. That's a, that's a huge channel for us. So, you know, we have 150 people. We operate 24-7 call center. It's our own call center. So customers can call in and say, this is my car. This is my problem. What part should I buy? So we still have that human connection. But, you know, the education online, trying to become a destination for buying parts where, you know, 80% of our traffic is mobile. So we have to give the customer all the information on a little screen. And that's, that's the piece of the puzzle that we're always trying to solve. What percent of your business would you say is through phone? Oh, it's about 8 to 10%. Now, is that 8 to 10% that buy through the phone or call in for customer service? Both. Usually people who call, we have actually a very, very good conversion rate. So by the time people call, we're able to solve their problem and we're actually very good at closing the transaction and giving them you know, the parts that they need and the information that they need. Yeah, because I think about like in the car business that People that even if they buy online, consumers, most of them will call to speak with someone at some point, which is interesting because it's a bit misleading when you think of the facade of like online car buying or in this case, online parts buying. But really, people still do call maybe to ease that apprehension or whatever it may be just to confirm what you're seeing is correct. But it's interesting how digital has exploded so much, especially in automotive, yet you know people still do call. I agree. I think, especially in the car buying world, a lot of, a lot of potential customers will browse, will spend hours on different sites, different dealers. They'll look at YouTube videos. They'll do reviews and they'll be, you know, 10% away from making the decision. They still need that human connection for that confirmation. 
hey, I've done all my research. I came back and this is the car that I want. This is the trim level. This is the submodel. This is the engine size. Is that the right choice? And usually the dealer will confirm that choice. But I think that extra 10%, that last mile is actually critical. And it has to be, a lot of time it has to be face-to-face or over the phone. Yeah. You know, as you were speaking, I, I thought about something funny, which is, I think a massive, massive opportunity here. Any person in the car business that has ever done any reconditioning will attest to what I'm about to say. But, you know, sometimes you need a little molding for a car and the aftermarket parts of buyers just don't have it. And you call the dealer, right? Or, you know, whatever. The, you call basically the franchise to where you can get it directly from the manufacturer. And it's like a small piece of plastic for like $350. How do we fix that? I mean, that's where I want to know, like, if you can tap into that market, I'm not talking about like the generic bumper that you can get anywhere nowadays, but I'm talking about that like little piece of molding that is marked up like 3,500%. If you can tap into that market, I think you're going to expose yourself to lots of dealers because we've all dealt with this and it boggles our mind when we have to buy this trim piece, like 500 bucks, but hey, you don't buy it, you can't sell the car. Yeah, the way we solve that, and it's not as scientific as you think, but you have to look at vehicles in operation and failure rate for each individual component. So, you know, if it's a Ford F-150 and there's 15 million of them on the road out there, you know, chances are there's going to be an aftermarket option for every single little, little trim or mold. Now that's, you know, probably 95 to 98%. So if it fails or if customers are complaining about something, chances are, you know, we'll go out and we'll make it. You know, the difficult part is if it's a car that doesn't sell as much as a Dodge Ram or a Tundra, and it's a part that doesn't fail as much, you know, you have to think about, you know, the cost of the mold, the cost of product development, the cost of quality control, and then the working capital requirements to buy that part and store it. So for us, and you mentioned that, you know, we have a million square feet of space and we're trying to stock inventory and we're trying to stock a lot of different parts for a lot of different cars, but we can't have those parts sitting in for years. So we want our inventory to turn, call it three to four times a year. So there's a balance between we manufacture it and we stock it versus it's not going to move fast enough. And it just just doesn't justify the holding costs. So, you know, in in the dealer space, you want the cars that are going to turn on the lot. You know, you don't want that inventory to age. It's the same thing for us. We want, we want to have the parts that the customer want, but that inventory has to turn because holding it is extremely expensive. And then the larger the part, the more commitment it requires. So imagine a door handle for Toyota Corolla, that's going to turn. Imagine a bumper cover for, you know, a Ford F250, but it's a model that hasn't been made in 25 years. That takes a lot of space. Oh, I get it. Inventory businesses, baby. That's what it's all about. We got to keep paying $500 for that little piece of plastic, huh? For now. Until you can introduce some 3D printing. (laughs) For molds, actually. We're starting to do that, actually. While we're talking about crazy ideas, are you guys doing anything crazy, anything with AI, anything just kind of out there to make this the whole parts acquisition process better? Yeah, I don't know if it's crazy. I think we're we're seeing generative AI and language models as a huge opportunity. You know, I think a year ago when ChatGPT became really hot, companies had a decision to make. Either you embrace it and you leverage it and you deliver a solution that customers will use, or you just say, you know what, this is one of the newest things and we're going to wait. But we didn't wait. We went all in. So we're looking at a lot of our data, product reviews, fitment data, uh, customer feedback, and we're trying to, you know, to create an experience that just makes the experience better and smoother. Again, like fixing your car is not a pleasant experience. Sometimes I like to think about it as like going to the dentist. I don't know how much it's going to cost, 
and I know it's going to be painful. So if there's a weird noise with my car, I'm like, you know what? I don't know how much it's going to cost. I don't know if I'm going to be out of commission. And I, I know if, if I'm not a car expert, it's not a pleasant experience. So how do we remove that? How do we make it a little less painful and maybe more pleasant? So I think the chat GPT and generative AI, that's an opportunity to make that process a little bit better. How do you think that actually practically helps me replace a bumper? So I, I, replacing physically, I don't know, but just making sure that you have all the little brackets that go with it, making sure that you're asking the right questions so that you don't have to go through the process multiple times. So think of a bumper cover. Some of them have fog lights. Some of them don't. Some of them have sensors. Some of them don't. Certain trim levels have a different shape, right? So if you have a Ford F-150 or a Dodge Ram, or there's so many different trims and engine size. Every bumper cover is different. So we need to make sure that we're asking you the right question. Now, ideally, over time, if you could take a picture, upload it, and then we'll make sure that we match the exact same bumper cover for your car. So I think image recognition and then built if built on that is all the catalog and fitment data. I think that makes the process a little bit smoother. How have interest rates impacted your business? I'm curious, again, we've spent multiple times about the tailwinds you have from just people fixing their cars, DIY and all that. but how have interest rates impacted your operations? You know, interest rates impact the American consumer and they impact car prices, home prices, insurance prices, and every business out there. You know, any business that tells you I'm completely immune to changes in interest rates is probably not close to reality. So when you're seeing car prices go up exponentially and interest rates go up exponentially, and the car payments, average car payment is what, $775 or $779 these days. What it does is it makes you rethink the decision to get a new car. That's number one. If you have a variable rate mortgage and your disposable income goes down, what do you think happens to your, your demand? So what, you know, what we're seeing is interest rates have a direct impact on demand, demand generation. We're seeing consumers still spend. Everyone is still spending. There's just a lot more discipline as to where they spend and when they spend. So that means we have to tighten our belts. We have to figure out opportunities for efficiencies in that vertical integration. We got to get the same parts at slightly lower prices. We got to get our transportation costs down, our packaging costs down, but we still have to make it faster, better experience and offer a lower price. So this year, actually, we saw our prices become more competitive. You know, we saw transportation costs, especially from overseas come down and we passed on those savings to the customers because we are seeing some American consumers are struggling. I think interest rates is a, is a direct link to that. Well, speaking of savings, and you're clearly a public company, so, but I think for the audience, it would be helpful. Walk us through your margins. What's your average margin? And then I'd love to know what's the lowest margin products, highest margin products. So in terms of product margin, we're very similar to the brick and mortars. So product margin is somewhere between 50 and 55%. Now, because we're a direct-to-consumer business, we send it, we ship it individual part at a time, right? So you're looking at freight costs somewhere between 15 and 20%. Okay, so that leaves a gross margin after freight, after outbound transportation, somewhere between 30 and 35%, depending on the channel. So that's on the gross side. And then on the variable cost side, you have customer acquisition cost, and we want to be free cash flow positive and variable contribution margin. We want to be positive on the first transaction after customer acquisition cost, fulfillment cost, credit card fees, then we have a little bit of fixed operating expenses, and then all of that trickles through to, to the bottom line. So now what's interesting about our business is as we scale and as we get bigger, we're able to get 
better cost, so better product margin, lower transportation costs because we get closer to customers. And as we develop kind of that destination for customers, our customer acquisition cost is going to come down. And over time, that makes the net margin more attractive. What are your highest margin products? What are, and what are your lowest margin products? I have some thoughts here, but I want to see what you're okay, going to say. Okay, okay. <laughs> highest margin products are the products where we're one of the few players to offer those products. So large body parts, non-conveyable items. You know, if you're going to start a parts business tomorrow, you're not going to go into very large I'm items thinking about it. and sheet metal. No, I'm, just kidding. I'm, definitely, <laughs> let's do it. I'm definitely not thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> if you do, let's do it together. So, <laughs> But so on large items, there's more working capital. So it requires a bigger investment and more space. So we require a better margin. So it's not that we have less competition, so we charge more. It's that it requires more investment and we need a higher return on invested capital. So we need a, a slightly higher margin. Now on consumables, we have a lower margin, wiper blades, brake pads, because obviously, you know, you can go anywhere and, and get those parts. Yeah, definitely. I mean, brakes, wiper blades, that's the table stakes of the car business. Doesn't surprise me that that's the lowest margin products. I guess compare your prices to a dealership parts department. I, I know you mentioned that you're looking to work with the dealers, but who really are you competing with? Is it other online parts websites or junkyards? Like who is that competitor for you? You know, what's interesting is, and, and every business has competition out there, obviously, but aftermarket auto parts is a $300 billion business. It's a $300 billion addressable market. And less than 5 to 6% actually happens online. So I actually think there's opportunities for us, some of our competitors, to capture that market share. You look at the other industries, most industries have been disrupted by either online or some type of digital experience, right? Pet foods or clothing or travel. But if you look at auto parts, the majority of auto parts purchases still happen either at the dealer, at the shop, or in a brick and mortar retailer. So we're playing in that 5% addressable market, but that market is getting bigger. And the way we're competing is we want to have a better experience. We want to have a better brand. We want to have that direct connection with our customers. And we want to have a full breadth of products. So mechanical, collision, accessories, consumables, fluids. So we want to be kind of what that about destination. Tires? What about tires? At some point, probably, I think there's an opportunity. You know, we're seeing a subset of our customers that actually want to buy the parts and the tires. We're not built for it yet, but I think there's opportunities. But there's also opportunities to partner with some of the, the brakes folks out there, we don't have to build it from scratch. I'm big on strategic partnerships and there's opportunities for us to, to go faster with that. Tell me about parts. I think growing up in this business, it feels like tires was always like a segregated thing. Even when I worked to shop at some point, like tires we were ordering from always different vendors, you know, shopping prices and stuff like that. But why is tires always sort of its own thing relative to other parts? You know, I don't know if tires is his own thing and it's everything else. I see, you know, you got your mechanics, you got your transmission and engine guys, you got your body shops, you got your tire shops, you got your brick and mortar for fluids, consumables and batteries. So I actually think like all of these are kind of separate segments. I don't know why all of it is so separate, but you know, my guess is it's the expertise, right? But the other thing is time on the lift, right? So if you're a mechanic, you're going to lift the car up that bay is completely tied. You got to get that turning. So again, we're going back to inventory turns. And so the, the same way a dealer has to turn the inventory, a mechanic or a tire shop has to fix it and keep turning. 
What do you think about EVs? Is it good for your business, bad for your business? I think, listen, the, the numbers, and you publish all the numbers all the time. I think it's a big opportunity long, long, long term. And, you know, we'll be a player in that space when EVs become the biggest part of, of the car park. You know, today it's two to three percent of cars in the United States, if not less. So for us, it's about two to three percent of our sales. Long term, it's an opportunity. Short term, I think we got a lot of stuff to do as a country to build an infrastructure to change the way consumers are subsidized to buy an EV. The reality is there's a lot of customers that wouldn't buy an EV if it weren't for the subsidy. There's a lot of customers that don't want to buy an EV. And so, you know, you saw the, the announcement about Ford and the Ford Lightning. Like on paper, it looks good, but if customers are not buying it, then maybe it's not an opportunity. So there's a lot of things that need to happen for EVs to become the biggest share of the car park. And we're not there yet. You know what goes through my mind? I mean, I can only imagine as a parts guy, when you see the Cybertruck, do you get like crazy anxiety? No, <laughs> I, I, from, I don't I don't have anxiety. From, from the parts perspective, because I remember I was looking at the, the Cybertruck and I'm saying, oh my God, I cannot imagine having to order parts for this thing or replace parts on it, let alone send this thing to the body shop. I can only imagine like it's it would just throw them into a spin. I'm like, what do I do? I'm trying to figure out how do we make it an opportunity, right? Like there's door handles, there's shocks, there's no, tires, there's, no door handles. there's brakes. Well, there's in interior, interior door handles, yeah. Interior, right? So, and by the way, we're very big in interior and exterior door handles. So tailgates, there's always an opportunity to sell some parts or bulletproof glass or whatever it takes to, whatever it takes to solve the customer's problem. But when I saw it, I was just laughing. The first thing I thought about was the shop. Like every parts guy in the world is looking at that thing and saying, holy shit, what do I do with this? But it is a cool car. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. I love pickup trucks. So, you know, I, I, I love that car. Are you going to get a Cybertruck? I don't know yet. It would have to be all black and matte. So I'm not there yet. I like my old GMC pickup truck. So pivoting for a second, you mentioned DIY customers, like do it yourself. That is your customer base. But who specifically, do you have a bit more granular demographic data than that? Are you mostly like urban environments, rural, suburban? Like who is your customer a bit more in depth? Yeah, so predominantly male. You're talking about 70 to 80% male. Predominantly yeah, yeah, slightly I, I don't older. Think, I don't think my wife's going to be replacing a bumper anytime soon. So I would agree with that. <laughs> so on the bumper side, you're right, right? You're talking about a customer that's slightly older than 40, maybe all the way up to his 60s. But there is a subsegment of female that are looking for just entry-level stuff. So your wife is not going to do the bumper, but your wife could do the wiper blades. The wife could do an air filter. Changing a cabin air filter is literally two minutes. So there's little things that you want to do just because it's cool, not because you want to save money, but you know you want to be empowered. So we have a segment of customers that is slightly younger, female, that wants to feel that empowerment. I can imagine that that's the case. I think it varies greatly by the relationship and the person. So after we're finished here, I'll tell my wife to go replace the cabin filter. We'll see what she says. We, we can send her one and we can send her the instructions. You tell me what car she drives and we'll take care of it. <laughs> Earlier, we were talking about your manufacturing vertical integration. What do you think about like long-term manufacturing all these parts in the US and just generally speaking, manufacturing in the US versus abroad? How do you guys think about that? Yeah, so geographic diversification of the supply chain is super important. So historically, body parts were exclusively made in, you know, Taiwan, mechanical parts. A lot of them are made in Europe, Mexico, some in China. What the supply chain disruption showed us is that if the cost of containers goes to $22,000 per container, it changes the economics of importing. So 
you know, we're always going to predominantly source from overseas, but we're actually starting to look into some American manufacturing, some Mexico manufacturing. We have a big footprint in Dallas. You know, we're just a couple of hours away from Mexico. So we could do some manufacturing in Mexico and then drive it up across the border. So there's actually some opportunities. It's a big commitment that we have to diversify our supply chain. It's not going to happen overnight. So, you know, in three years, we're not going to be 50% made in America, you know, but we have this brand called JC Whitney, where we have a huge opportunity to actually create some additional American jobs sourced from the US. Maybe it's slightly more expensive, but you don't have the cost of transportation and you have an opportunity to have a, a higher quality. And then, you know, the logo made in America. So I, I, I think that still means something. Wait, so you said $22,000 a container. Was that what you were paying, you know, peak of the pandemic when the supply chains were disrupted? That's what some people were paying. We never paid that much. <laughs> and, and here's why. You know, in 2019, when we came into this business, we looked at all the critical capabilities that we needed to build a profitable $1 billion company. And because we do sourcing, because we do quality control, because we do importing and trade compliance, we decided to build that capability in-house. And we have, you know, a lot of contracts, a lot of agreements with all the carriers. You know, this year we'll import close to 6,000 containers. So we never paid anywhere close to $22,000 a container. But obviously today a container, you know, door to door is somewhere between three and 4,000. So I'd say what we were paying is probably somewhere in the middle. So I can only imagine, I mean, that's roughly 5X at the peak. That's a hell of an increase to prices. And obviously we saw inflation, but I didn't know the specific numbers with respect to container costs. And so the question is, where does the inflation come from? Does it come from the cost of the part or does it come from the cost of transportation? So if you have a container that's, call it $50,000 worth of parts, and then the cost of transportation is $4,000, your all-in cost is $54,000. Tomorrow, the same parts will cost you, call it $51,000, but then the cost of the container is $22,000. The inflation comes from inbound transportation cost. It comes from the cost of the freight, the container itself. Yeah. Do you feel like we're mostly past that at this point? Do you feel like that's history at this point? Yeah, we're 100 past that. For for this cycle, <laughs> the economy goes in cycle, transportation goes in cycle, but you know, we're back to pre-pandemic levels and everyone, including us, is paying, call it sub $4,000 a container door to door. Just looking out three to five years, we talked about just some technologies and how you really had the tailwinds at your back, just given the fact of affordability issues and whatnot. But what does the future look like for carparts.com? So the future looks like a, a profitable $1 billion company. We think the space is big enough. You know, we were a $280 million company a few years ago. Today, you know, we're closer to $700 million. So we have to bridge what, the gap. About, what are you referring to? Are you talking about sales, top line? Sales. Yes, sales. And profitable, right? It has to be profitable. It has to be free cash flow generating. And so, you know, the way we get there is threefold. Number one, we have to build an exceptional digital experience that's mobile first. We have to empower the customer to get all the information that they need on their phone. And we just launched an app, which really helps us get to the next level. That's number one. Number two, we have to carry the brands, the categories, the SKUs, and all the products that our customer are looking to us to carry. So historically, a lot of co collision in body parts, some mechanical parts, expanding that assortment. So more products, more brands, more categories. Number three, we have to build a destination that creates value for customers. So not just a marketplace, not just a place where you can look for a part and buy the part at the cheapest cost. We need to be top of mind for customers. We need to empower customers, empower drivers along their journey. That's kind of our mission. 
So developing that branding, content, consumer insights, first-party data, and not first-party data to monetize it, first-party data to create value for customers. So if you look at how internet companies operate these days, Amazon has a lot of your data. eBay has a lot of your data. Google has a lot of your data. So that data has to be monetized. What we're trying to do is get data from our customers in terms of their driving behaviors, what car they drive, what trim level they have, their VIN number, how many miles they have, so that we can create value for them. Here's recommended maintenance. There's a recall on your car, or it's been a year that you haven't done this job. Here's value that we can create for you so that you can think about us next time you have car repair or friction with maintenance, you come to carparts.com. And these are like the three pillars of our strategy to get to a billion dollars profitably. Before we wrap up, I saw that you recently launched a content hub. I was reading about this. It seems like you're, you believe in the power of media, which I love to see, but just tell me, what's your goals here? What are you actually trying to do? Yeah, we're trying to build a destination for customers to get information about the auto world. And so we're very good at selling parts and we're going to be selling a lot of parts. We sell a lot of parts today. We're going to sell a lot of parts tomorrow. But what we need to do is become that destination for customers where they can get all the information that they need, how to repair, how to maintain, how to upgrade, what's happening in the auto industry, what's happening with EVs. It's really important for us to have that destination. So I'm big on content. I think, you know, the long-term marketing strategy for us is develop relevant proprietary content that our customers can get access to. You know, there's entertainment, there's education, like all of that comes into play. Podcast, blog, videos, events. It's very important for us to build a brand for carparts.com. You know what comes to mind? There was a company on the East Coast called Revzilla. Very big on content. I used to look through their stuff. It's a similar idea of, you know, mo- motorcycle focused but a strong content strategy and very successful. So yeah, very successful and it, content is key. And so some companies will cut corners and you know, you'll rely on performance marketing because you get that immediate feedback loop. But long-term for us building an exceptional billion dollar company, content has to be king. David Mignon, my friend, thanks so much for coming on. This was awesome. If anyone wants to learn more about you or car parts, I mean, obviously carparts.com, that's, that's a start. That's the start. If you need information, if you need parts, if you need great parts at competitive prices, carparts.com is the place to go. Very cool. We'll put the link in the show notes below as well. David, thanks so much for coming on. This is great. Thanks for having me. All right. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Please give the podcast a rating. Consider subscribing to the show and check the show notes for links to what we talked about. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time.